Hey church, uh, here we are. I uh, regrettably forgot to hit record on our sermon yesterday and uh, for posterity's sake, I want us to have access to our teaching, what we learned uh, yesterday on Sunday in Esther chapter 7. So here we are. We're going to deliver it uh, old school COVID-19 style. Uh, First, I want us to read the text together. I'll read straight through it. Um, And then we are going to break it down exactly what we're seeing. And then we're going to pull some application from it. And uh, we're also going to review everything that we've talked about, everything that's happened in the story up to this point in brief, because chapter 7 today is absolutely the crux. It is the peak of the action. It's everything that we've been building towards as we've studied Esther chapter 7. So if you would, uh, let's briefly, I just want to pray for myself and for you. Uh, If you're listening to this, whether it's the first time or you're hearing it for uh, the second or third time, I want us to, uh, to just focus our minds on the Lord. So if you would, pray with me. Lord God, you're good, and we trust you. We trust your word. We thank you for the word you've given us. And Lord, we ask that uh, as we hear your word, whether it's uh, in person or in teaching, uh, as we're receiving it, just like this in this video, Lord, that you would be sovereign over your word and that you would do work, God, that as we hear your word, that we would uh, be molded by it, Lord, that we wouldn't come to your word as as a stalwart, as a wall, God, but we would come um, as an open door, Lord, ready to receive what you would give us, not ready to pick it apart or argue, Lord, but ready to hear. Lord, we thank you that you would instruct us. We thank you that you would shape us and mold us. Your grace to us in Christ is evident, God, that you would give us the ability to hear your word and to be changed by it. What a miracle that is, Lord, and we pray that that miracle happens today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. All right, so let's read Esther chapter 7. I'm going to read uh, from the ESV as as we are in the habit of doing. Um, You may note that uh, in some of your translations that uh, that verse, uh, that the section break in chapter 6, it kind of breaks at verse 14, the last verse of chapter 6. Um, that's okay. Matt, uh, Pastor Matt exposited that for us in a previous sermon. Um, it, it does play into very significantly what uh, we're going to read in chapter 7, but, but we'll, we'll circle back and tie it in. But we're just going to start today, 7 verse 1. Let's read together. So, so the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Remember, Haman's in the room with them. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman 
was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And as the word left his mouth, the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. And then Harbonah, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, uh, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the wrath of the king abated. Folks, I hope you can see uh, how what is happening here in chapter 7 is absolutely a culmination of everything that we have seen up to this point. Uh, we've been waiting um, on, on this, this plot that developed against the Jews at, at Haman's uh, request, and at Haman's, it was Haman's idea. It developed all the way back in, in chapter 3. And here we are in chapter 7, and we're finally starting to see this, uh, this issue, this crux being dealt with. And it's dealt with rather dramatically. Before we begin, I, I want to kind of set our course this morning. And there was a commentary that I read as I was studying to, to teach on, on Esther chapter 7, uh, written by David Strain, and it was, it was very helpful for me. And in his introduction uh, to his commentary on Esther chapter 7, he begins with a really intriguing thought, and I, and I want to share that thought with you. He notes, Strain notes, that, that Christians and those who ad- identify as such often state that humans have a problem with sin. We always say, well, we have a sin problem. And, and I say this too, it's, it's what I teach our kids on Wednesday nights. If you, can, you can ask any of our, of our children that are involved in Awana. You say, hey, what's the one problem every human has? And they'll say, sin. We have a sin problem. But what I love about Strain's commentary is, is he, he continues, he says, if we continue and we analyze that thought, it's not true at all. See, we don't have a problem with sin. We're experts at sin. We love sin. We don't have a problem with it. We want more of it. And so our true problem, if, if our problem is not a sin problem, what is our true problem? Our true problem is a problem with God. Strain says God is a problem for sinners because they love their sin. We love our sin and God does not. And we, our experiences bear this out in real life. If you, if you think about it, just, just think about this, how, how your experiences say that this is true. Think about these situations. Maybe you've even been in one. Maybe you know someone who's been in one. You know the person, maybe it's you. Who's letting that friendship with a coworker inch closer and closer to inappropriate, but you're just unable to, to cut it off and, and, to, and to pull back? You're enjoying it too much? Or maybe, maybe you've, you've been enjoying watching things on TV or on your phone that, that you know you shouldn't be watching. Maybe you're, you're lying about finances. You know, first it started with lying to friends, and, but now you're lying to your spouse because of the debt or the spending. It's just, it's just out of control, and you can't stop. And your conscience burns all the time, but you don't do anything about it. You know that God disapproves of this action, of this behavior, of this thought process, but you persist all the same. You don't stop the inappropriate relationships, right? You, you don't stop the lying. You don't stop the, the looking at the porn. You, you just can't stop. You can't stop the spending. You can't stop the secrecy. You can't stop the rage. You can't stop the negativity. You hate it and you love it. So your conscience burns and you continue all the same. And so whatever that thing is, whatever that thing is that has come to your mind now and you're, and you're rolling it over, 
whatever it may be, maybe, maybe, nothing, maybe nothing came to mind. Maybe that's God's grace to you, but, but I ask you, friend, did nothing come to mind because there is nothing or, or because you've, you've not been seeking to find what that sin is so that you can kill it? Everyone has it. It's all there. It's there for all of us. And so why this is a problem is because that this love of a thing that God hates is what brings us into this eternal conundrum, the thing we're talking about today, this predicament. And that predicament is this, knowing right but preferring wrong. Knowing right but preferring wrong. So therefore, in fact, if this is true, and our problem is not with sin but it's with God, then... then uh, it, the news gets worse, right? The, the, your problem with God is actually much, much worse. It's much bigger than you realize. It's like a good, like a good salesman saying, oh, but wait, there's more. It's not a good more, though. Because just feeling the prick of, of your conscience against God's standard is not the end game. Feeling guilty is of no use unto itself. In this dichotomy of, of hating and loving sin simultaneously, we have to face this really harsh reality. The Bible clearly teaches us that the Creator God demands sin be dealt with in kind with His hatred of it, and that our sin is an affront to God's very nature, and it must be treated as such, and it must be purged from every part of His creation. And friends, make no mistake, God will purge sin from his creation, and he will purge you or I along with it if necessary. So simply feeling conflicted about sin gets you nowhere, right? What does Jesus say in Matthew 5? He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So furthermore, even on top of this, let's just keep digging a little bit, right? Furthermore, God demands not just that we modify our behavior so that we can forego this pet sin, right? The sins that we treat as acceptable loss, but he demands our total allegiance. You must divest yourself of sin and cling to Jesus alone. Friends, I don't know, I don't know if you're with me, but this should be feeling heavy. It should, it should, this should just start feeling like an unbearable weight just, just standing down on us. Can you stand under that weight? I know I can't, right? I can't stand under that weight. And if you think you can, I challenge you to think about how long you can stand under that heavy, heavy burden. But here's the break. Here's where, here's where we, can we can take a breath, all right? Gather yourself back in. Think about this. What if, what if despite all of this, everything that we've just discussed about God's standard and our sin and our persistence in sin, what if by some miracle, the same God that claims total dominion over everything that you are, over all your thoughts, all your actions, over your whole body, your whole life is his, and he claims it. And the same one who tells you to forsake these household sins, what if he doesn't stand in judgment over your sin from some far off place as, as we often perceive him, as I often perceive him? What if he's not in some far-off place looking down on you in judgment? What if he didn't gaze on our complete inadequacy by looking down his nose, right, with his arms crossed, impatiently waiting for your standard to rise to meet his? 
What if the God, this is what Strain says, I'm quoting Strain here, he says, what if the God of infinite purity, whose glory is inimical to sin, hostile to it, is nevertheless turned towards you, not an infinite disdain, but an infinite love? What if? What if, friends? What if, what if all the initiative is God's? What if all the work in overcoming God's, this God problem that we have was born by God himself? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that change the way that we think about the depths of our soul? Wouldn't that change the way you, you think about the secret sins of your heart if that was God's character? Friends, I'm telling you that that, that, that changes everything. That would change everything if it were true. And it is. That's the gospel. That's what Christ comes to proclaim. And that's the gospel that we see this morning in Esther chapter 7. So let's dive into our text this morning. We've already read it. So I just want you to dive in with me. It's just a story. We heard the story. So let's just study and see what the story says. What's it teaching us? So we pick up today at the crux of the narrative. That's at the peak of the drama, as we've already said. But in order for us to get the grasp of that, I want us to do something. I want us to do something as quickly as possible. Okay, and, and I think I can do this in about two and a half minutes. All right, I want to summarize the narrative so far, chapters one through six, right now. Okay, so, so we're going to put a metaphorical two and a half minutes on the clock, and we're going to go. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go fast. I'm, I'm going to look at notes here so, so we can get it done. But just just track along with me. It's going to be a lot of information, but you can do it. All right, here we go. So, Esther who is secretly Jewish, was raised by her openly Jewish uncle Mordecai in Persia, right? So she's super beautiful, and Mordecai is an awesome guy who loves God. There's a king, the king of Persia, Ahasuerus, and he's a pretty unstable guy with questionable judgment. So in the story, when he sort of divorces, kind of slash fires his queen for not hanging out with him, it's not really a big surprise. Anyway, so a king needs a queen, right? And Mordecai sees a sweet opportunity for Esther to get into the palace and have a somewhat royal life. So since Esther is super beautiful and really charming, bam, King Ahasuerus chooses her as queen. This is where things get really interesting, okay? So Uncle Morty, that's what we're calling him now, Mordecai. Uncle Morty, he finds out about a plot to kill King Ahasuerus, and he tells Esther, who tells the king, who has the plot stopped, and the assassins killed. Boom, this is a big win for Morty and Esther. But this dude Haman comes on the scene, and he is an Amalekite. And they, if you read First and Second Samuel, they hate the Jews from way back, okay? But Haman gets his big promotion to number two in all of Persia, all right? And so people are supposed to bow down to him because he's this big, important guy, and the king told him to do so. But Morty doesn't play like that, okay, y'all? Haman wears this idol around his neck. It's literally an idol to be worshipped. And, and Morty realizes that if he bows down to this guy, it's going to be like worshipping a false god. Haman gets up in his feelings about this when Morty won't bow down to him. And he wants Mordecai dead until he finds out that Mordecai is Jewish. And then he just decides to kill all the Jews. This guy's nuts. So Haman, he low-key schmoozes King Ahasuerus into letting him kill all the Jews in the entire Persian Empire. They set a date, and then and he makes a big gallows to hang Mordecai on in, in his backyard, a huge gallows, when it's all over. So obviously all the Jews are upset about this. Uncle Morty is upset, and he goes to Queen Esther, who he has instructed her whole life to keep her Jewish heritage a secret. And he says, we got to do something. you got to tell the king. you got to tell him you're Jewish, and you got to stop him. And Esther's like, 
uh, what am I supposed to do? I can't just go in and talk to the king. He literally has a rule to kill anybody who just walks up to him. And Uncle Morty says, is the, the, the peak of the book so far, he says, if you're not here for such a time as this, then I don't know what you're here for. So Esther's like, fine, I'll risk it. So she goes into the king's courtroom before he gets there, and she's looking all beautiful. And then when King Ahasuerus comes in, he's like, dang, Esther, you look nice. Come over here and talk to me. You look so good. In fact, I'd like to give you an extravagant gift up to half my kingdom if you should ask it. So Esther goes up to him, and she invites him to a feast instead of telling him to not kill the Jews. Don't worry, she's crafty, okay? They go to this feast that she plans for him. They're having a great time. She walks up to the king, and she invites him to another feast. And that's where we find ourselves today. That's Esther chapter 1 through 6. I don't know how long that was, but it was close to two and a half minutes. That's the story so far. So here we are trying to find the resolution. We are at that final feast that Esther had planned for Ahasuerus. And guess who comes with him? Haman. Oh, baby, this is going to be interesting. I don't know if you guys have ever been to an awkward dinner party where there's like a couple that are fighting or like, like there's drama going on and it's not your family so you can't really insert yourself. Something like that. Just picture that. That's the kind of tension we're going to have in the air. Okay, so Esther chapter 7, verses 1 through, uh, let, let's look at verses 1 through 6 together. So Ahasuerus, they're, they're at this dinner party, him and Esther and Haman, and they're having a good time, and he asks a third time. The king asks a third time to give Esther this extravagant gift. And no doubt, Esther, Ahasuerus is, is, is ready to give this gift. He's ready to get this request over with. But he's expecting something monetary, something like clothing or, or money or land or something. He's not ready for the request and the statement and the confession that Esther is about to give him. We know what she's about to ask. He doesn't. For Esther, all the chips are about to get pushed into the middle of the table. She's going to lay it all on the line with this request. And we're going to explore why. Okay, And, and I'll give you a hint. It's because if she doesn't say anything, what happens to her? Nothing. But if she identifies with the Jewish people and things don't go well for her, what happens? She dies too. Her life is on the line. So I want us to look at three things right here in Esther's request and, and her use of words and exactly what they accomplish in this meeting with Ahasuerus and Haman, who is also present. So number one, Esther's words, they illuminate evil. Okay, And then the second thing we're going to look at is that her words, they appall Ahasuerus. And the third thing is that Esther's words, they horrify Haman. So the first thing, Esther's words, they illuminate evil. So when Esther throws her request out there, she quickly reminds the king, hey, you like me, remember? Right? I have your favor. Come on. And then she drops the bomb on him, right? She says that her life and her people are under the threat of death. Now, here, I want you to notice something about her words. She does not name her people. She doesn't, she doesn't call herself Jewish, and she doesn't call her people the Jews. So this is what Esther does, and this is, this is the, a direct gospel parallel here. I want you to see the gospel in this church, that Esther doesn't link herself to the Jewish people. Rather, she links her people to herself. She wants mercy for her people based on her merit before the king. See, the thing is, the Jews don't have any standing as a people, so appealing to their collective worth is not helpful in this situation. It's useless. So Esther stakes the lives of her people, the Jews, on her own reputation and her own favor, since theirs is of no value. 
Church, do you see the gospel of Jesus in that? Do you see this echo of the gospel in Esther's actions? Let's continue. Esther does something else in this request to, uh, to illuminate the evil of what's going on. Esther does something here with her request. She appeals to the king's self-interest, right? She puts this genocide in, in, uh, in, a, in a way that, that, that King Ahasuerus can understand, right? She puts it in terms for him, and those terms are dollars. She said, you might get all of the Jews' belongings when you kill them, right? You might, you might make a little bit of money off of them when they die, but think of all the, all the profit and the lost productivity that you could, even if you just sold them as slaves, Esther highlights how truly foolish the order to kill all of her people really is. It's both unjust and unwise. Esther illuminates the evil of this plot. The second thing is that Esther's words appall Ahasuerus. So this claim that Esther makes has a shocking effect on the king. He's finding out, like, why why is the queen under the threat of death, right? Now, you might be asking yourself, well, but didn't Hasworth sign off on this? Didn't Haman bring it to him? And Hasworth was like, yeah, go for it. Okay, just, but think about it this way. He's a busy dude, all right? He probably signs a lot of edicts and commands and things like that. And from what we can tell in the story, he's not a great decision maker. And it looks like he, he mostly delegates responsibility to take care of details and things to other people. And he doesn't really make decisions on his own either. So he's not in the habit of remembering things that he does. He just has to trust other people to do it for him. And so he's like, what's going on? Why are you worried about dying? I don't know anything about this. But as it's going to turn out, he is responsible, at least in part. He is the one who's issued this order. The third thing that Esther's request does is is that her words horrify Haman. So Esther's judicious use of words here have this, this final effect of implicating and terrifying Haman. You notice how in verse 4, when she, when, she, when she says her request, she quotes, she quotes the exact edict from chapter 3 that Haman sends out, that her people are going to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And this direct quote that, from what Haman has sent out, Haman's ears perk up. He's like, wait, wait a minute. I remember those words, right? She, Esther knows her stuff, and I think she does this for Haman's benefit. And Haman's starting to get the picture. So at this point, Haman's kind of starting to panic, right? He's wondering what's going on. He's trying not to spit his wine out all over the table. And he connects the dots, right? And he realizes what's going on. Esther is not the victim of some mysterious assassination plot. There's not some big dramatic thing here. This is actually his own plan to kill the Jews that he hates so much. Haman has accidentally and unintentionally formed a plan that will end up getting the queen of the empire killed. So this is a bad situation for Haman, right? This, this is not going well. I want, us, I want us to go back and look at chapter 6 really quickly because this, is, this isn't the first, the first tick downhill for Haman. Haman's, he's been on a downward trend for the, for, the past, for the past two chapters. If you remember back in chapter 6, Haman, who hates Mordecai, right, because he won't bow down to him and because he's a Jew, he hates him literally more than anything, he gets tricked, he gets duped into having to parade Mordecai around the, around the city, singing his praises and telling everyone about how much the king loves him. And this is what happened because the king remembered that Mordecai had saved his life by stopping this assassination plot, right? And he wants to honor Mordecai. But 
the king doesn't make his own decisions. He needs some advice, and Haman happens to be in the palace that day. And so he sends for Haman. He brings Haman in, and he says, Haman, I was, you know, I really want to honor somebody. If, if, I wanted to, if a king wanted to honor somebody, what would they do? And Haman, because he's the worst, says, man, he must be wanting to honor me. Okay, so I'll tell him what I would want. And he gives the king this elaborate situation where, where you should parade this person around the town. You should give him robes and a crown and have someone go out before him crying, Oh, the king delights in this man. But it turns out the king wants to honor Mordecai. And he tasks Haman with making sure that this gets done. Haman is at an all-time low here. And when, and when he goes home that day, he just wants to vent about how terrible his day has been and how things are not going his way. And he goes home to his wife and his friends and he tells them about this bad situation. And you know what he gets from them? They say, basically they say, listen, it looks like your scheming is finally catching up with you, Haman. Mordecai is clearly going to get the better of you. And Haman's kind of left just thinking, thanks guys. But they're right. See, Haman's chickens are really coming home to roost on this for him, right? So he has sowed wickedness by lying and schmoozing the king. He has burned bridges to get ahead, and he has been so unbearable that even his wife and his friends are unable to comfort him. They have so little compassion on him. Church, I I want you to see this. I want you to see the consequences of Haman's sin and how they have affected him. See, we, we get just a snapshot of what's going on with Haman. But look at what Haman's sin, Haman's persistence in sin has cost him. Haman's insistence on doing exactly what benefits him and thinking about himself first has led him into sin in such a way that he has alienated everyone around him. And church, I want you to see this. We have said this from, from this pulpit many a time, but we do not sin in a vacuum. Your sin is not left just between you and the Lord. When we walk in persistent sin, unrepentant sin, it comes at a cost. And it's often a cost we cannot see until it is too late. If we do not sin in a vacuum, it, it affects us, it's, it affects our family, it affects our community, and it affects our church. If you are walking in sin, friends, I pray that you will see what is happening to Haman and you will take heart these words that you will run from your sin because it is going to keep you longer than you want to stay and it is going to cost you more than you want to pay. Run away from that sin and run to the good God who is a forgiving and loving God who has died for you to give you the freedom to turn from sin and repent. Do not pay this cost. Do not run yourself ragged, alienate your friends and family, and drag your community down with you into your sin. Turn from it. Do not be like Haman. Be humble and turn to a God who desires to forgive you. And I think we've all been in a moment like this, or we've dreaded the moment that this happens, right? Where the sum of all your mistakes kind of starts welling up. If we, if we come back to Esther 7, Haman is in a bad spot. It, it's, it's all really starting to, to crumble down around him. And, and like I said, I, I think maybe, maybe some of us have been here, and, and maybe some of us dread that day when all the secret things that we wanted to keep from the world, they're just, they're just laid out in the open for everyone to see. The, the, the reality of the mountain of mistakes that you have acquired and accumulated over your whole life, they're just strewn out before you and there's no place to hide them 
anymore. Everything catches up to you. And when that moment arrived, Haman was not prepared for it, though he should have been. Friend, I pray you do not get to that point. I pray now you see the grace of God in Christ and you turn from sin and receive forgiveness. We continue in our story, Esther. Uh, it, it continues. We see from King Hazarias' reaction to Esther's words that she has made her point well. He gets what's going on, and he is outraged. He says, who would dare to do this? He is indignant, and he wants answers now. And Esther is ready, and she unloads. And it's like that dramatic courtroom scene where, like, is the person you saw on that night, the night of the murder in this room? And they're like, yeah, he's right there. All right, that's what happens to Haman, okay? Esther calls him out right there. And it turns out that this was a good thing. You, you maybe think it was awkward to have Haman in the room when this is going on, but it's good because Haman's reaction further makes her point. Haman's reaction proves all but proves his guilt. And, and King Ahasuerus is so angry that he leaves. He has to leave and get some fresh air. And, and I think in this moment, Ahasuerus is not a contemplative man, but he goes out into the garden palace and things are starting to settle in on him, right? And his wrath starts to boil because he's remembering now probably that that he approved this, this, this edict that Haman had brought him, right, to kill this re- just a random rebellious people. He's realizing that, that he has unwittingly approved of the murder of his queen. And he's lamenting also the loss of who he thought was a good companion, but it turned out to be, who turned out to be a, a scheming, self-obsessed bureaucrat. All of this results in, in the wrath of the king just, just burning and burning against Haman, burning against the situation. What's to be done, right? I mean, here's the thing. How, how can he possibly execute Haman for doing a thing that he told him to do? I mean, he, he could potentially just get Esther removed, right? Just, just, just pretend she's not here, right? This never, this never happened, but he's already promised to give her this extravagant gift three times publicly. Like, that makes him look stupid, too. He does seem to care for her as well. He could punish Haman, but that makes him look bad too. What has Ahasuerus going to do? Well, the Lord's going to make a way. If, if we look at the final verses, 8 through 10 in our chapter here, the king returns, right? After that quick contemplation in the garden, his wrath is just boiling, and there's no discernible outlet for it, right? So as he enters, though, Haman is going to give him exactly what he needs. He's going to provide the way out. See, there's a few rules in in uh, in the Persian palace. Okay, and these are these are documented in, in historical documents. The the Persians were great at keeping records, right? So there's a few rules of, of how to conduct yourself when you're in the palace of a Persian king. Number one is uh, as a man of the court. If if you're a man, you, unless you're a eunuch. You should never be alone with one of the king's concubines. It's just inappropriate, and it's punishable by death. There's also a second rule, though, is that a man should never be within seven steps of the queen. And Here Haman is, falling next to Esther on the couch, breaking both of them. You see, when the king stepped out of the garden, Haman should have done one of two things by protocol. He either should have followed the king out, or he should have left the room. The problem is, Haman doesn't want to be in the garden palace with the angry king. He says, oh, I don't want to be out there. That dude's, that dude's pretty mad right now. And he doesn't want to flee because that makes him look guilty. He stayed, though. He stayed and he thought, man, I'll just, I'll just beg the queen for my life. She seems like she might be sympathetic. And then the king steps back in the room 
as Haman is falling on the couch. And before Haman can even get the words out, I bet, the king seizes the moment. He accuses Haman, and the guards act quickly, and they bag Haman's head, and he's out of there. And then there's Harbona. You sly dog. You, you guy. See, here's a guy, Harbona, the servant who's in the room, who sees an opportunity for poetic justice and pounces. And I don't know, I mean, maybe this is, maybe this is the extent of how many people hated Haman, right? Maybe Harbona is even Jewish. I never even thought about this until, until I was studying this. But he seizes this moment for poetic justice, and he informs the king of, of just, there just happens to be a gallows that Haman built uh, in his backyard. Well, he was going to hang Mordecai on it. You remember the guy who saved your life? Well, he was going to hang Mordecai on it, so I don't know, you could, you could maybe hang him on that. And that's exactly what the king does. He says, yeah, hang him on that. The king just wants justice done. And so they go and they hang Haman on his own house, high in the air, for all to see as the result of the lies that he told and the deceit that he sowed to advance himself at the expense of others. And justice is served. And with justice served and these problems solved all by Haman's death, the king's wrath is satisfied. By the death of one man, there can be peace. That's another gospel parallel today. Church, this is, a, this is a great passage. I love the resolution that we get here. I, I, love, I love the gospel parallels that we see here. But I want us to observe a few things. I want us to pull out how we can observe the gospel in Esther's actions. And then I want us to see how we can observe judgment in Haman's actions. So first, let's look at how we can observe the gospel in Esther's actions. So as we walk through the text, did, did you see it this morning? Did you, did you feel that? the parallels, the echo of God's grace to us in Christ in the way that Esther conducted herself. She does three things, right? She does three things that display the gospel to us this morning. The first one is that, that she identifies herself with her people and her plight. And we talked about this one. Esther doesn't, doesn't remain an outsider. She doesn't try and say, oh, king, think, think about these people and, and, and don't kill them. They don't, they don't deserve death. No, Esther doesn't remain anonymous. She doesn't keep her identity hidden. She identifies with her people as one of them. The second thing she does is that she includes herself with them in their sentence of death. By, by naming herself with her people who have already been sentenced to death, Esther puts her own life on the line. What's going to happen if the king doesn't like the idea of not killing all the Jews? Well, now everyone knows that Esther is a Jew. And so when the order comes to fruition, who is going to be executed along with the rest of the Jewish people? Esther. Esther includes herself with them in the death sentence. And then the third thing is that she ensures. She is her people's insurance. She ensures their redemption through her own merit. The Jewish people have no standing in the kingdom, but the queen does. She is their ticket. And because she has linked herself to them, she is their insurance that whatever the outcome, she will be with them. And when the outcome is in their favor, it is because of her and it is by her merit and not theirs. This is an echo of the work of Christ's church on our behalf, is it not? Do you, do you see that? 
that, that sinners, we, as sinners, we stand condemned before the law of the king, the law of the father. And Jesus comes counting himself among us. And he quite literally steps down to our level and he becomes flesh. He becomes one of us and he stands where we cannot stand. We cannot stand before the king. And by his own earned righteousness, he bargains against our sin debt to save us from death. And if we identify ourselves with Jesus, with him, then we can be counted as saved from death, the death that we earned through our sin. And so where Esther, this this is where the gospel is even more beautiful, where Esther earns this temporary, temporal salvation for her people, Jesus surpasses that in every way because in Christ our fate is sealed through eternity. We are sealed to, to die and never die again. By Jesus' perfection, we can have eternity free from the penalty of our sins. So Esther persuades a king to spare her people, but Jesus, who is God, he bears the penalty of his own law in his flesh to secure a salvation for his people. Do you see the gospel this morning, church? The second thing I want us to see is I want us to observe the judgment in Haman's actions. So we almost must observe in this this passage the consequences of our own refusal to repent. Do you see how Haman reaps exactly what he sows? How Haman pursues his own interest, right? So Haman does three things, right? He pursues his own interest, he persists in his sin, and he pays for his own debt. Okay, the first one is that Haman pursues his own interests. So, so in, in parallel to Esther, where Esther makes the ultimate sacrifice for others, Haman prioritizes himself at the expense of others. Haman persists in his sin. So where, where Esther sees the error in remaining silent to the plight of her people, Haman compounds his wrongdoing, refusing to see his errors, refusing to turn from his sin. And finally, Haman pays his own debts. So where Esther stands in the gap between her people and death, Haman pays the penalty for his own sins himself. And this is where we see something, something really cool this morning, church. We see propitiation. In Esther 7, we see Haman demonstrating for us what propitiation is. When we read that Haman's death, upon his death in verse 10, that the wrath of the king was abated, so not only is Ahasuerus is satisfied, but the law is, that was broken is satisfied. As long as Haman is alive, this is the problem, right? As long as Haman is alive, there's three things that are wrong. Number one, the king is offended because Haman has usurped him and insulted his wife. And number two, justice is not being met because the law has been broken. And the punishment for that law is death. And number three, as long as Haman is alive, the Jews are not safe because Haman's plot lives on with him. But with Haman's death, all of these conditions are resolved. All the penalties are paid. And so the simplest definition that I can give you for propitiation is that it is satisfaction of wrath through sacrifice. The full price must be paid to satisfy the law. That is propitiation. Haman's death is the propitiation for these many sins, for his own and these others. Haman's debt to the law is removed, right? At, at, at his own payment. He pays his own debt, but it cost him his life. 
Now, church, here's the thing about propitiation. It is the absolute molten core of the gospel. We noted earlier that Jesus identifies himself as one of us and taking on the flesh in the incarnation. But for the wrath of the Father against our sin to be satisfied, a price must be paid. Propitiation must be made. So Jesus takes on our debt. It's not his debt. He doesn't have a debt. He takes on our debt and he bears the penalty of our sins in himself. Because, friends, I want you to see this. Make no mistake that you don't have to submit to Christ as Lord to pay for your sins. You might be wondering how that's possible. You are perfectly capable of paying your own sin debt, but the price... The price, friends, is an eternity in hell where the, where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. Your sin represents an affront to God of the deepest magnitude. It is the exact opposite of His character. Therefore, the punishment for every single sin is proportional to the significance of the one offended. And if the one you have offended is the eternal living God who is perfect and holy in every way, The punishment is severe. And just like Haman, who persisted in his sin until his final moments, there will come a day where you and I stand to be judged. And just like Haman, on that day, when your sins are laid bare before you and the Lord, it it will be too late, friends, to implore Jesus to step in on your behalf. Just as Haman tried to implore Esther to save him, The time had passed, friends. Nothing can be done. The time of judgment is at hand. And if you choose to stand on your own merit, friends, you know the outcome. Your sins will be paid on that final day. But if you are not in Christ, you will pay them yourself. Hear the gospel this morning, friends. I want you to hear this clearly. If you are in sin, then run to Christ who pleads that you cling to him or perish. And do not delay because time is not your ally here. It is your enemy. Turn from sin now. The miracle that I mentioned, the miracle that we started this thought, of the, the, the big what if that we started this whole thing with, where God doesn't stand in judgment from some far-off place but draws near, that, that big pipe dream we talked about, church, that's reality. That's not a dream. God has drawn near. He has looked at each of us not with infinite disdain but with infinite love. And how can he make his plea to you more clear than to draw so near that he takes on flesh and that he takes on the law and that he takes on the cross for you? When you get a hold of this, when we get a hold of this truth and it rests on us in all of its weight, that's when we make this eternal trait. In the beginning, we talked about not having a sin problem, but having a God problem. The trade that Christ makes for us is that we can run from sin, we can turn from sin and look to him, and we trade our God problem because we love sin for loving God and having a sin problem that God has taken care of. That is the trade of the gospel. And church, I pray you make that every morning. You make that trade. Now, here's the thing. We need to apply this, okay? How do we apply this? So it's really simple, actually. We need to see the seriousness of our sin and the dramatic consequences that it has. So what does it tell you about your transgression of the law, your sin, that it is so abhorrent 
that God himself must die to rescue me from my sin? What does it tell me about my sin that God must die to solve the problem that it creates? It means it is no small problem. In fact, it is the most serious thing that has ever occurred in eternity. So here's the question. How can we continue in this grievous behavior and be loving God? If we name the name of Christ and we call him Lord, how can we continue in sin and love God? And I just want to read, I want to read five scriptures for you and then give you a very simple admonition. The first one is 1 John 1, starting in verse 6. It says, If we say we have fellowship with him, God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, he is in the light. And we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 8, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans 12, starting in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says this, Since we have these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And finally, Philippians 3, verses 14 and 15. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you also. Church, a simple fact to answer our question, how can we continue in sin and love God is that we cannot. The scriptures tell us that clearly. I want to qualify what I'm saying here, so listen closely. To sin, to persist in sin, knowingly, as a pattern, the same struggles over and over is inconsistent with being redeemed in Christ. John Owen says this, he says, he says that if we consider sin God's enemy, then God is grieved by our harboring of his enemies. God is grieved when we harbor his enemies so close in our flesh. How can we fight sin and how can we wage war on sin if we harbor the enemy within the gates? It is not possible. We must be putting the, to death the deeds of the body like Owen advises just moments later in the same book. He says you must be killing sin. Or it will be killing you. You must be killing sin or it will be killing you. Friends, sin is death. Purge it from yourself, whatever the cost. Church, this is something that that I want to share with you, this this next section here, that that as, as we've talked about God wanting you to purge sin from your life and how sinning pattern day after day the same way, walking in sin is is unacceptable to the Lord and is inconsistent with with being redeemed in Christ. This is not limited to your behaviors or your thoughts. It also extends to your your ideologies. And as we've said this morning, the Lord demands not just the killing of sin, but our total total allegiance. And this this morning in our text, we have a very prescient 
It's a secondary theme. This is not the main thing that this is about. It's a secondary theme, but I think we have to take it to heart because of what's going on in the world around us right now. And I'm not talking about COVID-19. There's something very obvious about Haman's plan. That Haman's plan is racist. It is anti-Semitic. Haman hates Mordecai and his people, the Jews, simply because they are not his people. Haman seeks to further himself by disenfranchising and destroying another race of people. It is genocide. Now, here's the thing. Ahasuerus, he's also complicit in this plan. And so while it's not likely that we, we could call Ahasuerus, we could label him very easily as, as a racist or an anti-Semite because it's, it's not his plan to kill the Jews specifically. But he nonetheless approves a plan to wipe out a people group for nothing more than some quick cash. Right? All he knows, and this is, this is, from, this is from Esther 3.8, this is Haman's quote to King Ahasuerus. He says, their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So Ahasuerus may not have been swinging the sword, and he may have not hatched the plan, but he is an accessory to this because he is in power and he allows it to happen. Here's the thing, though. Esther is not in any different boat, right? She's, she's, not, she's not immune from this. What would happen if Esther said nothing and let the plot unfold as it were? She'd be fine, right? No one knows she's Jewish. Morty would die, and that would be sad for her, but, and maybe she would lose some friends, maybe some servants that she knows, but her life would, would, be, would, be, would just continue unchanged. And she, all she has to do is nothing. Just be passive. But Esther, this is the thing, this is the change that she has. She sees the injustice and realizes, for, realizes it for what it is, that it's dreadful and dishonoring to God and the image of God born in each and every person. It dishonors that image. And she, like Christ after her, she steps between the unjust and the victim and says, stop, stop. How are we, church, how are we who claim the name of Jesus and exalt him as Lord, how are we excused from doing the same thing today? What about our current state as the church removes us and our responsibility to speak for and support members of our society who are victims of injustice of any kind? I cannot find a loophole that would make this true. We are culpable. So church, I'm not making an accusation this morning and, and I'm not implicating you in something that I haven't wrestled with myself. I simply want us, I wish to call us to, to collectively reflect as the scriptures call us to do on the state of our own heart and to be broken before God in the gospel this morning. To, to see something in the world and to, and, and to be soft to it. I want to speak specifically to the issues of injustice and racism that are being protested all over our nation this very week. Because this is my fear, right? This, this, and this is what I hope will be the practical part for us. This is my fear, is that we would fall into one of three camps in regards to these issues that are being raised right now, and that we would do so without proper reflection, we would do so as a knee-jerk reaction, and that we wouldn't be letting Christ lead us, but we would let the culture lead us, Okay? So here are the three categories, all right? We could be like Esther, we can be like Ahasuerus, and we can be like Haman, okay? So maybe this morning, you are like Esther, okay? 
and you stand with these protests and, and you decry the injustices that you've seen or the ones that you've heard about and you want change. That is a good desire, church. You are soft to what is happening in the world and your heart is soft and that is beautiful. But if your primary solution is for other people to change or your primary solution is for the government to change things for us, that is not the appropriate place to start. That is not the appropriate response. That's not what the scriptures clearly call us to do, okay? The primary solution cannot be for other people to do something about it. It cannot be for other people to change. It's right to see the injustice, but our primary solutions cannot rest on others changing, and we cannot expect government or institutions to lead that charge for justice. If you were like Esther, but still believe the solution is systemic, then I think you have missed the gospel. Number two, maybe you're like a Hazaras, and I imagine many of us, many of us at Poplar Spring fall into this category. I would put myself in this category. Like a you think, I'm not involved in this problem, right? I've never been racist. I don't hate anyone. I've never done anything inherently racist that I'm aware of. What does this have to do with me? Because of that, my primary solution would be just to remain uninvolved, right? Or my primary solution would be to continue about my business and to be, I'm, I'm not thinking about it, but I'm not not, I'm not not thinking about it. It's just, it's kind of indifferent. I hope, I hope it gets resolved, whatever. As Esther shows us, to have knowledge and power to make change but to do nothing makes you complicit. So furthermore, Christ commands love from his followers. It's a command, right? It's not a request. It's a command that we be loving people. We have been loved, and so we must show love. And friends, not hating is not the same as loving. Do you hear that? Not hating someone is not the same as loving someone. So does your love for your fellow man allow you to see pain and injustice and remain passive? And here's the question. Is that the love that Christ showed you? Maybe number three, and I pray this is no one at Poplar Spring, but it's very possible, okay? And there's grace. But maybe you're like Haman. Maybe you say, I, I have or, or cur- you'd be, maybe you'd be willing to admit this, that you have or currently have harbor disdain for other races, and you think these protests are ridiculous. And then your conclusions from there is that my primary solution is to be angry and bitter about this situation. Or maybe your primary solution is to remain unchanged and disregard the pain that your neighbor clearly feels. The only response that I can give you to this, friend, the first and foremost thing you need to do is turn to Christ and repent. There is no way to say this softly, so I'm just going to say it, but it's impossible to fully comprehend the goodness of Christ and harbor hatred for your fellow man, especially if that hatred or disdain is based solely on someone's ethnicity or worldview. Whether or not you fully agree with with conclusions or solutions to the problems that people put forward, that's not the point, right? To see your fellow human as God's image bearer is the point. That you can weep with them when they weep and that you can mourn with them when they mourn and you can rejoice with them when they rejoice. We must do this, church. We must. And here's the thing. If your response to hearing your neighbor say, your friend, someone who lives in our community, someone who lives on the other side of the nation or the world, 
to hearing them say, things are unjust for me, if your gut reaction is to argue with them about the merits of this perceived injustice, what does that tell you about your heart? When your fellow man says to you, I have, I have, I have been, I have been uh, perpetrated against and that, that there is no justice for me or my people, if you, would, if you would first argue with them without evaluating your heart and what, what the gospel says, what does that tell you? But it reveals, friends, that, that if our first instinct when someone cries injustice, injustice, is to, is to argue and, and to try to pick it apart, it just reveals this, friends that you are worried that the status quo will change for yourself and you don't want to have to give up your rights for the sake of someone else. Church, that cannot be us because that is not the gospel and that is not the, that is not the Christ that we know. That is not the Christ revealed in the scriptures. He is the Christ who would give up all rights. There's many valid responses on the spectrum wherever you fall, and I want to stress the primary response, though. This is the primary response. I'm not here to tell you what to do or make conclusions Or tell us how to fix this problem. That is not what I am here to do. What I am here to do is to point us to Jesus. To point us to the gospel. And I want to quote my wife here. She says this all the time. She says, we must do the hard thing with a soft heart. Do the hard thing with a soft heart. So even if that hard thing is saying, I don't agree with you, but I want justice for you because you are God's image bearer and I love you. The real solution to the problem at hand is, is the gospel. It is plain and simple. There is no divergent path for justice, for social justice, and the gospel. They are the same thing. The gospel solves social problems because Christ changes people, and people are the problem. The gospel is the solution, and the location that this work begins is nowhere but right inside your own heart. That's where we must begin. We must evaluate ourselves against the gospel and against Christ's commands to us. Our greatest joy as followers of Jesus Christ is to, is to flee sin and cling to Christ. He is your refuge. To do so, we must seek to root out sin wherever it may lie, whether it is in behavior or thoughts or ideologies. Whether, 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 it's, whether it's something deep-seated that you have been aware of for years or something that is just creeping up in the back of your mind, you have to be prepared to murder that sin because it is dragging you down and your family down and your church down with you. God wants to wash you from your unrighteousness. Church, we must realize that we are complicit in the acts that we allow to go to happen unchallenged and unseen, especially with the freedoms that we enjoy in this nation. And so maybe you're saying to yourself, Michael, you've, you've said a lot of words here, and I want to know what to do. What do I do? Who do, who do I pay, right? Who do, who do I apologize to? What's, what's my action point? How can I make things better? And that's, that's where I'm right there with you. I, I don't have... Any, any practical go-out-and-do-this solutions, right? All I can do and all I know that I can do for sure is I can begin by evaluating. I can root out the sin, find the sin, find where my character and my beliefs and, and my ideologies rub up against the gospel the wrong way. And I can be changed by the image of Christ. Church, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. We have to see him. We have to cling to him the one who gave up heaven for those who did not love or worship him to die on their behalf as, as sinners, a death that he didn't deserve. He gave up all his rights to stand in the gap for sinners like you and like me. And so how can we stand in the gap for our fellow man? That's the question we have to ask. It's not a governmental question, not a societal question. It's just a question of where does the gospel land 
on you and how will it be changed? How will you allow the gospel to change you? How will you surrender your rights for those who are, who are, who are in need? Church, that's what we're called to do. We have no rights because we don't need anything in this life because Christ has given us everything in the life to come. If you have it, it's because God has given it to you to give away. That could, that could include your rights. That could include a status quo. That could include a freedom. Is it not worth it to bear the image of Christ and to preach the gospel boldly to a fallen world? Church, I believe it has to be. So I pray you hear the gospel this morning. I pray you hear, I pray you hear love and I pray you see God is one who draws near and is ready to wash and cleanse and make you righteous by the blood of his son. I'll see you guys soon.